This is the Emergency Medical Minute, sponsored by Health One. So I wanted to talk a little bit about our current thinking about airway management and treatment of acute hypoxia in the COVID-19 patient. This is definitely a moving target. And what we're working with here is all essentially based on people's case reports and experience and a rapidly changing dynamic understanding of what this illness we call COVID-19 is from the novel coronavirus. Today is April 3rd. And when we look back just a month, I would say that our assumptions about treatment of the disease have changed dramatically. I want to just really focus on decisions around how we give people oxygen, how much oxygen, whether we intubate people, whether we intubate early or whether we do something else, whether it's okay to use non-invasive ventilation strategies and which particular ones might be most effective, recognizing that there's going to be a lot of variability based on your facility, your local culture, your local kind of critical care resources, what your options are in terms of non-invasives. There's a lot of moving parts here, in other words. So I think it's fair to say that if you roll the clock back about a month and a half, most people were saying intubate early, that these patients have ARDS, that based on the experience with the SARS and MERS patients earlier in the decade, that non-invasive ventilation didn't seem very effective, that most of the people that got placed on this ended up getting intubated anyway. And so the mantra really evolved of intubate early. And people were using numbers like six liters of nasal cannula oxygen if patients were still hypoxic, that that, that that was a trigger for intubation. And, you know, fast forward a month and a half, and a lot has changed. And based on the experience in Italy, as well as the experience in our hot zones within the United States, I think people are beginning to change their tune. There's a couple of things going on here. One is about resources. So there's some thought that perhaps in the early stages of the epidemic, that people might have been intubated essentially too early, and that 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 then contributed to the problem of running out of resources, specifically ventilators. I think that's somewhat speculative, but nonetheless, that is definitely a point that people are making. The other problem is that obviously once you intubate somebody and they're on a ventilator, they then become dramatically more resource intensive in terms of all of their care. So the nursing requirements, the physician requirements, the respiratory therapy requirements, the needs for sedation and neuromuscular blockade, new problems arise like barotrauma from the ventilator, and then the incredibly resource intensive work in proning patients and other parts of kind of a, you know, recruitment strategies that that just take up a ton of resources. What we're hearing from Italy is that Italy essentially ran out of ventilators and then out of necessity really had to switch to non-invasive strategies using CPAP. And they're fortunate compared to the United States to have access to helmet CPAP. And apparently a lot of centers have had tons of these machines. These aren't FDA approved in the United States to my knowledge, and I'm not aware that anyone has access to these. But we do understand from them that they've been pretty effective in ventilating a lot of patients with a non-invasive strategy. So I think the original question about whether CPAP was effective has been answered and it does appear to be effective. Now, the second question is, is it safe? And I feel like in, at least in my institution and, and, and talking with many of my colleagues in the House of Medicine, there are still real concerns about its safety. It's assumed that not all these non-invasive strategies greatly increase the aerosolization of, of viral particles and that that greatly increases the risk to staff. And I don't think you can argue that that's not true. You could argue about the relative risk versus absolute risk 
questions, but I don't think you can argue that it increases risk. And simply, you know, not all places are going to have the ability to put every one of these people in a negative pressure room. There may be incredibly, you know, there may be big constraints about available PPE to providers. So there's lots of considerations there. At my facility, you know, we we do, we are fortunate to have a fairly large number of negative pressure rooms. We also have a fairly large number of heated high flow nasal cannula systems. And it's it appears based on some smaller studies that the heated high flow nasal cannula systems probably are less of an issue around aerosolization than we may have originally thought. And their aerosolizing uh, properties may be more akin to that with just a normal high flow nasal cannula or even, even a, a non-rebreather face mask. So to take a step back, I think we now know that it, it appears that non-invasive strategies are effective in, in keeping people off of ventilators, that many people actually can be managed in this way and avoid intubation. And that while there are some concerns about the risk there, that it may not be quite as high as we thought and that heated high flow might be optimal because of it, it may be the least aerosol generating of all of those non-invasive strategies. What we're hearing from New York specifically is this practice of people have jokingly or anecdotally called it the pig roast. High flow cannula systems, whether it's true heated high flow or just a non-rebreather or just a regular nasal cannula turned up very high. And then those patients are able to maintain an adequate oxygenation in the upper 80s, but are able to stay off the ventilator and therefore stay, you know, keep themselves moving around. They're able to auto prone, if you will, sit in a chair, move around and do their own kind of recruitment strategies to help keep themselves off the ventilator. And of course, those patients don't require the same level of resources. You know, they're not needing sedation and paralytics, and they're not obviously not needing a ventilator, most importantly, and aren't needing proning teams. So I think all of this is kind of driving us to reconsider whether maybe this intubate early strategy was wrong. And I think each site is moving at a different speed, but I think it's safe to say that we're all moving towards let these people be on lots of oxygen as long as they're not hypercarbic and encephalopathic and as long as their worker breathing is not the issue that you might be able to tolerate lots of uh, supplemental oxygen and tolerate some high 80s, you know, oxygen saturations. I live in Denver and I practice in Denver as well as in in some uh, high altitude mountain clinic ERs where kind of everybody's just walking around at 88%. So thinking about having someone on 88% honestly isn't that isn't that unfamiliar. And then I guess the last point I'd make about all of this is just the sort of emerging interesting discussion about what this disease is that we're calling COVID-19. Again, this is speculative. This is anecdote. This is not peer-reviewed content. This is really just kind of grist for the mill and, and interesting points of discussion. But it will be interesting to look forward in a year or six months and see what, as we get some more hard science and data behind this, what, what really falls out. But one thing that I'm hearing uh, discussed a lot is whether these patients really have ARDS. And I'm not a pulmonologist or a critical care physician. I'm an emergency physician. And I'll defer to my colleagues in those realms who are far more expert than I am. However, uh, what we are seeing is that the pulmonary mechanics of these people are often relatively normal, meaning they're very hypoxic, but their work of breathing and their airway pressures are not necessarily super duper high. And this is perhaps, you know, people are comparing this to a disease model of high altitude pulmonary edema, which is a condition I'm very familiar with because of my practice uh, locations. And, you know, it really does sound like a lot of these people really 
really they really do and in my experience they really do resemble patients with hape where they're actually don't look too bad even though their oxygen levels are terrible and their numbers kind of look terrible and that as a model may inform our decision and and thinking about these patients moving forward we certainly would never intubate someone with hape or very rarely intubate someone with hape we would tolerate long periods on very high flow uh, oxygen levels and we we kind of wait them out and that's if you can't descend them obviously you know if we can descend them that's that's best so that's my uh, brief kind of updates just wanted to give my take on where we're at with oxygen where we're at with non-invasive strategy and the traditional mantra of early intubation I think really being challenged and where we're at with kind of some some uh, speculative ideas around the pathophysiology that we're seeing with with COVID-19 at least in the early stages thanks for listening we are on a quest to provide the world with free medical education please help us out by rating us on iTunes following us on social media and subscribing to our newsletter at emergencymedicalminute.com